Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Step up to the plate and get the best lines in baseball with William Hill Sportsbook. When you play with our money lines, you win more when you're right. So sign up today and start betting risk-free. Download the William Hill mobile app and your first bet of up to $500 is risk-free using promo code RADIORF. New users only. Must be 21 years or older and present in Virginia to bet. Paid and free bets. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call, text, or chat our confidential and toll-free helpline at 1-888-532-3500. William Hill Sportsbook. Let's make it interesting. Hello, my name is Dave Henry and the Albino Encore. Welcome to The Revisit, where we go back in time to Irish albums past. This year, it's 2002. Uh, a hell of a table, as always. Kieran from De Rentos. Hello Hi there. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you, yes. Good to see you. I was uh, enjoying your, your, your tweet storm. My tweet storm. tweet storm. Yeah, well, it could be any tweet storm by the time this episode comes out, so we, we, we won't get specific. No. Uh, Paul Noonan from BellX1 joins us today. Hi. How are you? I'm good, man. This is my first podcast ever in the well, world. Well, I hope when you go on your so, tweet storm, you'll say nice I things. I hope I get it right. Uh, Jennifer Gannon, back with us. Hello. Yes, I am. Of uh, 2FM, News Talk, State Magazine, various other places. Today FM, can't, you know, too, yeah. pro- <laughs> prolific. And Craig Fitzpatrick. Hey, man. What's of, up? Of this parish. Yes, I've done too many podcasts. <laughs> uh, I'm good. How were you in 2002? Uh, I was a teenager, essentially. So, um, pretty much like this, um, but slightly, I was going to say slightly less assured, but maybe more assured. Um, yeah, it was, it was a big year for me because I was just turned 13, was in secondary school and the strokes had just happened. So I was officially wearing uh, suit trousers, which was exciting <laughs> for everyone that was and wearing Converse. baggy jeans and like had chains and stuff. Um, so yeah, that was what I was up to, six, listening uh, to the strokes. Six years before you peaked as a human being as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all, it was all going to happen, man. Craig picked at 19. <laughs> he wasn't sure. It's something I've regularly heard for the past five years. Do, do you still stand by that? I do, yeah, yeah. It's been downhill from there. It really has, Come yeah. It has been a good decade. Um, <laughs> I've yet okay. to peak, I think, which is kind of worrying. That's a nice way to look at it. I, I should have thought of that. Or it's a depressing way to look at it. <laughs> Maybe you have many peaks. Maybe this is the peak. Just keep peaking. Tonight, Yeah. this episode. 
think I'll have another jelly tot, so. <laughs> Go for it to celebrate. Kieran has brought a bag of jelly tots. It's all very intimidating. Uh, 2002 <laughs> in music and other pop culture things, Craig. What have you got for us? Well, politically, the world was obviously still getting over 9-11. And, um, you know, there was a war in Afghanistan. In the absence of anything resembling kind of proper leadership from George Bush, Americans turned to Bruce Springsteen, who came back with a very patriotic, very stirring The Rising album. So he was back. Uh, For any kids, Yankee Foxtrot Hotel was doing kind of a similar thing from Wilco. Um, Also, the US turned to Jesus, apparently, because the year opened with Creed in the midst of an eight-week run at the top of the Billboard chart. So it was a big year for Creed. Uh, It was a post-grunge world. Um... So, you know, Creed was something a bit more introspective than, say, Limp Bizkit, who dominated in 2000. But we were still kind of doing that whole new metal, new something Stop looking thing. at me like that. Okay? I bought those records because I didn't know any better, okay? <laughs> I'm not judging. Uh, Nickelback's How You Remind Me was also out. Did you have that? You had that record? I bought that record. You yeah. had that record. Did you have Puddle of Mud? I bought that record. <laughs> was it just, he's got them all. <laughs> was it just all sports metal that you're into? Or? <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, I don't want to revisit this year, okay? I started a band this year, by the way. Uh, oh, wow. never, play, never played a single gig. And, uh, it's not on my <clears> list <throat> of, of things that happened. <laughs> we were going to do covers. Thankfully, you never left a garage because you never got a singer. But uh, the first tracks I ever learned how to play on drums were, uh, I think it was Yellow by Coldplay, Supersonic by Oasis, and hate to say I told you so by The Hives because they're all really easy to play on drums. Oh, yeah, okay. And fun. It's a kind of eclectic selection. You were kind of good for any mood, really. We would have been really good, but we never played a gig. And what happened? Couldn't get a singer. Oh shit! You kind of need a singer for cover band. Yeah, you could have been. You could have been the singer, man. Nah, man, I like these dulcet tones may deceive you, but uh, <laughs> I'm better with <laughs> nothing two, to nothing to lose but your chains. I'm better with some sticks in my hand. But uh, <laughs> back to 2002, uh, non Dave version, please. Okay, Craig. yeah. So the far side of the Atlantic, not focusing on Dave. Uh, Daniel Beddingfield was massive. We all remember him, don't we? He was yeah, doing stuff. He, he got was... a cage on his head one time when he had a car accident in oh, Australia. Yeah. That was before he was a pop star, wasn't no, it? No, after. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just when things were going well. I know. But he survived and he was grand. He's but great. He's just not Gotta get through so this as he sang himself. <laughs> yeah, he that did. was like a number one smash in 2002. <laughs> Gotta get through um, this. Oh, I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't know who Daniel Bellamy was. A big, <laughs> a big sharp battle was between Will Young and Garrett Gates. Um, I don't know why I'm looking at Dave for this as well. I'm not involved The whole this pop time. idol thing was properly taking a kind of stranglehold on music <laughs> and we had the kind of bargain bin Irish version of that. Um, so Six had a whole lot of loving going on. That was this year as well, sadly. Best pop song in the year was probably Sugar Babes Freak, Freak Like Me. That no. was a jam. Okay. Kylie, can't get you out of my head. Was it? Was that yes. 2002? I yes. thought that was 2001. No. I thought it was 2001 as well. 2002. Yeah. I got a Kylie pen that year. Oh, I was well, working okay. in Terror Records. Stationery's not going to lie. And the EMI rep came in and said, you're the only person in here that likes Kylie and is not a boy perv, so you deserve this pen. And when it was Kylie, fully dressed on the front cover of the Fever album, and then when you tipped it over, she was standing in a bikini. It was so exciting. Oh, wow. I still have that. That is some special. Treasured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Treasured possession. I get some of that. Yeah. <laughs> So Kylie was dominating yes. stationery and music. Um, Freak Like Me was a tune, though. Well, it was like, an amazing oh, tune. Oh, it's better than Can't Get You Out of My Head. No, Ooh. no. They'd be equally as amazing. Okay. A seminal pop moment. How'd you feel about Hot, hot and Her? Hot and Her? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. By Nelly. Great. Yeah. Nelly. Nellyville was captivating listeners around the world as well. There was, was a, a great mashup of Nelly's Country Grammar and the old Grain Chill theme tune that came out around then as well. Mashups were big at that mash-ups time. Mashups were massive, yeah. yeah. Also massive was the new rock revolution, pages of Enemy. Um, Looking at so, me yet again, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> you weren't listening to this so far. You were, were you? Were you into Strokes at the time? Were you into... Yep, yep. We know about your hate, hatred for Libertines, but... It's the worst band ever, yeah. No, yeah it's like, uh, Interpol. I'll, 
yeah. released Stern and Bright Lights. So there were yeah. some classics that still stand up from that period. And <clears> then, yeah, we're going to look at Ireland. So it was kind of peak Celtic Tiger. Everyone was feeling good. And there's some good music. Peak Celtic Tiger. Yeah, man. That's a phrase that we needed to hear again, isn't it? We're Jesus. just getting slightly too cocky. It's all going so well. Uh, anything happening in the world of sports? Roy Keane, Agro, World Cup? Yeah, man, Saipan. Yeah. Are we going to go back over you it? want to go back over there? <laughs> it doesn't seem to... Uh, Saipan doesn't, doesn't represent in the albums as much as it did later. This is true, yeah. You know, come yeah. 2002 was just solid Roy Keane-related <laughs> album releases. <laughs> well, uh, Kier, it was a lot of records to whittle down to just five. Like, a lot of records. Yeah, I think um, I think we talked before, around 1984, 1985, you were on 11 records or 12 records that were released that year that you could kind of find. And this was, I think it was actually, was it, actually, was it 48, I think? I think it was 48 this year, and uh, which is enormous. So there was a huge amount of listening done by everybody. Um, and we whittled it down to five, as we do. I think uh, God as an Astronaut can be a little bit... Um, Probably a little bit, feel a bit aggrieved that they're not here, but we can't talk about everything. So um, uh, we've chosen five albums. Jimmy Cake, Dublin Gone, Everybody Dead. Gemma Hayes, Night on My Side. JJ72, Eye to Sky. Deputy Fuzz, Music for Toys. And Damien Rice, Oh. Uh, there's a couple of albums that didn't get on it. I suppose Mick Christopher was a surprise that it yeah, didn't, didn't that get enough people. Y- you, were, you were a fan, sorry, of Mick Christopher. I wouldn't use the word fan. I mean, you, that doesn't mean I'm not a fan, but I mean, like, the word fan, you know, like, you mean, like, I, I you know yeah, what I mean? You, I was, you're, you're into it. Put it forward for contention. I mean, it was kind of, because it's, it's very, you know, like, kind of referred, oft referred to document at the time. And it's obviously the Glenn Hansard and the Frames connection, which, you know, it continues to this day. And I mean, I, I think Hopper has ran a big piece on it a couple of years ago in the annual, which is actually very well put together by someone who was close to him. So, I mean, like, he, he seems to live on, like, like in, in many, many stories that are still being told. Um, it's an interesting album because, I mean, it's a posthumous release and you're kind of like, you know, how much of this reflects the person? Like, would he have gone with this? And I think, you know, it's kind of scuppered a little bit by Heyday being so ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Yeah. Mm. Like, it was everywhere that year and the year after. Like, I mean, like, like, even when it crops up now, you're like, Jesus. And, like, that's not a slight in the song. It's just been so used where you're just like. Just think of Michael Fassbender crossing an ocean. Apologizing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so emotional. You can see why he went on to become the movie star that he uh, <laughs> has become today. Jesus, that's who that was in that ad. There yeah. you go. That just hit me. It's the podcast um, that aims to educate. But it's funny because Damien Rice actually, there's a bit of crossover. His album is dedicated to, to Mick Christopher. Mm. So I suppose he's represented a little bit. Yeah. I think it was a great testament to the bunch of people who finished the album and tried to sort of, because there was very little recorded um, at the time of Mick's death, I think he had recorded the basic sort of vocal and acoustics, and they put everything. Carl Odlum actually put put right. most of it, most of it together, and we're, we're very conscious of sort of getting it right and sort of. It's kind of yeah. it's quite a cogent album. Just hang, it yeah. does work as an it album. Does, it's kind yeah. of yeah. I suppose Carl Odlum again. He's with, he worked on the Gemma Hayes album, I think, as well. And is that right? He did. Yeah. And it, obviously, you know, very good producer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. The other one was Carl Coughlin, which didn't get in. I'm surprised because. Because I read that it was one of the albums of the year, and then I guess it didn't come through. But I wonder—I was thinking about whether, because there were so many albums, does that mean that each individual album gets just ends up getting less time to kind of grow on you, and so therefore you end up choosing albums, I suppose, to go onto the list that that are kind of more immediate, or they're ones that maybe stick out more. But then at the same time, there's the Jimmy Cake album, which I guess is definitely a grower. The JJ's Heavy Two for me, which is which was a grower, so maybe not. I don't know. Well, let's find out, shall we? <laughs> uh, we'll kick it off. We'll start with the Jimmy Cake, who sound like this. Yeah. 
right, the Jimmy Cake. And for you, Kieran, the reason why Gaza National should not be here. Explain yourself, sir. <laughs> well, um, that yes. Well, Dope and Gone, Everybody Dead is the second album from the Jimmy Cake. Um, it's after the first album, Brains. Eight tracks. It's an instrumental album, but um, it's also super interesting and inventive. Um, in case anyone kind of thinks that the instrumental tag is a sort of a, uh, you know, something that would hold them back. But um, it's great. It's um, got nine minute songs. It's got two minute songs. It's got uh, huge, you know, really kind of vast, powerful stuff like um, Ricky's Ricky's song. I think it's I can't read my own writing. <laughs> Ricky's song or Ricky sound. Ricky you know, sound. Yeah. Ricky sound. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's also kind of got jazz influences some part there's a bit that sounds like Arcade Fire at the start of um, one yes, of the you know, yeah, that very much well. so yeah um, it's a little bit repetitive times but mostly it's uh, kind of good repetitive like hypnotic and before it gets too ridiculous it um, kind of goes somewhere else I really like the album and you know, I didn't even realise but I think this is kind of around the time where I started kind of probably going to gigs and you know all that kind of thing so I was at the launch for this this still Jimmy Cake the launch is mad yeah. I, you know. and I was also at the launch of the Deputy Fuzz album I think which is in the Sugar Club I think and uh, so it's kind of a bit mental isn't it yeah. but um, at the end of the gig the bass player from the Jimmy Cake dip walked past and went hell yeah to me and I was when I was with all my friends and I thought I was an absolute <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah a um, couple of brilliant songs Opposite of Addiction uh, the first track it takes there's a kind of a hidden sort of track before it and when it gets going it's just, I just thought absolutely brilliant, you know. It's full of melody, full of noise. It meanders in the best possible way. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a, a really inventive and interesting album. Yeah, I mean, for an instrumental post-rock record, which is, you know, lengthy enough, has lengthy tracks, it's actually quite nimble and digestible, I find. And they're always kind of moving towards a hook, be it played on the accordion or just kind of a lone clarinet out there. They're just really good at the dynamics and so many climaxes are just arriving from track to track. And you're confident in them knowing where they're going and they're forming a narrative. I mean, with the longer songs, they feel like you don't want to use cinematic because everyone says cinematic, but they could be the basis for, you know, really good short stories or know mediocre novellas maybe or something like that <laughs> um, but yeah I mean they've talked themselves about how they're a leaderless group and there's you know been lineup changes over the years there's a lot of them there and I just kind of was listening in awe of initially in awe of how so many people made such a coherent piece of art and then on repeat listens you kind of forget about the players and it just becomes this one moving kind of formation or kind of you're just listening to the sound and I think that's quite an Irish thing as well at times. I mean, you know, at times it's quite jazzy and avant-garde and, you know, discordant. But it comes back to almost, you know, folkier leanings or trad leanings at times where it sounds like people just enjoying a bit of a session. I know a session that's been poured over and painstakingly kind of, you know, every note is written out. But you can see them kind of dueling and playing off each other and there's something really exciting about that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that was most... Uh, powerful live, like having. Yeah. I think I was at that same gig that launch, oh, yeah. and I'd, I've seen them. In, uh, several, was that in Wheelands? It was in oh, Wheelands. I thought it was in Wheelands. Oh, I thought yeah. it was upstairs in the uh, <coughs> lower lower deck. <laughs> <laughs> they, they also they did a gig as well like here with Pram. Remember Pram? Okay, yeah, in yeah, yeah. As well, so I think there was two gigs in Wheelands, and maybe getting the two of them mixed up. But it was definitely. I thought it was upstairs in the place that's now Opium that used to be called 
the village. Oh, the village. Like village. village. Yeah. Was it not? Yeah. Oh, there was I, a rednecks lodge in the village. Yeah. Maybe my, my, could uh, have, my because my great memory's gone. Was that year as well? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Nobody waved at you, did they? No. <laughs> never happened. <laughs> <laughs> he came over. and He went hi. Jimmy, can get in touch, please, to verify this story. I think they had that sort of, as you talk about that sort of like great communal unhinged joy and, and it was that was the the power alive when you'd see them sort of feed off each other and, and improvise a lot and mm. those you know nine minute songs became 15 minute songs sometimes and stuff and it was it was very reactive and, and something wonderful to, to, to behold live for me that that's its strength it's not something I ever listened to at home to be sure. honest but I loved seeing them play live also the fact that and I found this out after the fact that the Jimmy Cake was one of those blue things you see in a urinal yeah. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, was, I heard that before sort of, I didn't know it was, yes. yeah. it's pretty cool <laughs> it's a good name for a band I remember I think at, at that gig that I was at which was the, the imaginary gig no the imaginary <laughs> yeah. gig and uh, but the the, the, the the brass players were standing at the back and um, they were kind of dancing along when they were playing mm. and um uh, one of the girls who was playing, I think clarinet, she was emptying her spit valve. You know, it was she was playing and kind of moving with the music, and then she'd empty her spit valve in time with the That's music punk. to start. To start, you know, I, I, like it's just funny because I don't know, it's the kind of things that stay, stick in your head that aren't necessarily yeah, you know yeah. what it's all about. Were you at the gig, Jen? I was. You I was at two this. gigs. Yeah. Two, I mean, I was at a, actually a good few Jimmy Cake gigs over the years, and yeah, I think I totally agree with Paul in that way. I think on record, it's not something that you you can't really sit down and listen to almost in a way. I mean, it was that around the time of, like, Godspeed, you Black Emperor, and Seagull Ross just kind of coming out. And I think with all of those bands, you have to hear them live, to, or even Mogwai, to under to appreciate it, really, and the volume and, and the level of... Because with the Jimmy Cake, they could mix, they could go from something that sounded almost motoric, almost like Krautrock, but then mixed kind of with trad, but then the overriding feeling was like, this kind of sounds a little bit like Black, Sab- Black Sabbath. They're a little bit like that. So they could move all the time. It came in different waves and live was great for that because they could just mix it up a lot more and be more free. I think it is hard with those albums not to, if they are completely concentrated without any vocals, you can lose yourself a bit in them in a good way, but also in a bad way where you're kind of going, this is fading into the background a little bit, but they always rein it back in and they always have mm-hmm. their, their ears kind of hooks there that you're not expecting, um, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. It makes it interesting. Um, I mean, we used to put it on the shop all the time because at that time I was working in Tower and we used to always have it on and the amount of copies that we just sold from people just wandering around and going, what the hell is this? It's crazy. And mm-hmm. that's interesting. And, you know, I know a lot of Irish bands kind of came out afterwards trying to, I don't know if you emulate it, but being influenced by them in certain ways. But I don't think anybody captured that massive intensity that they had live. Really. Yeah, I think that I think it does. I think you're right. I think some of the stuff on the on the album just doesn't translate as well. And mm. for like I, I, like the last couple of nights I've been uh, practicing, so I've got a reasonably long drive. So listen, listen to albums in the way, and I, I just I didn't want. I just just it didn't suit that, you know. Like I put the Gemma Hayes album on, for example, and it just just went with me on the drive do you know kind of way but the Jimmy Cake album I just found it just a bit too kind of odd you know mm. um, when I was about 26 we were driving back from a gig in Dingle and uh, the sound man said I'll, dro- I'll drop drop you back to Dublin you know and I was like oh great you know and, I, and uh, so I was delighted with this and I was a bit under the weather for various reasons and I sat in the back and he played this kind of um drum and bass metal drum and bass and everything was hit it was things being hit on by you know metal hit on metal all the way up 
and I, I felt like I was on this mental acid trip, you know, all the way. <laughs> so I felt like I was kind of in hell and it seemed to go on forever. And so when I was listening to this, it kind of reminded me a bit too much of that. So I had to stop listening to it. Card okay. Journey. What was your favourite, uh, though? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reviewing that next week. <laughs> uh, as, as you microdose throughout the episode. I mean, like, it's that kind of one thing where, like, it, it's such a barrage and it's kind of has, has a weird vaudevillian style to it here and there. Like, you know, an yeah. accordion is used, like, yeah. pretty, as a, almost like a primary kind of texture all the way through. And I do think it's very uh, challenging to get through in one sitting and just kind of, like, really kind of wrap your ears around it. And, I mean, like, I, I, I hate saying stuff like, oh, I really admire this record because it makes it sound like I'm, I'm stepping away from it and kind of, you know, saying more about my own kind of flaws as a listener here but like like I've never seen them live and I kind of miss their I guess their kind of prime run and as a result I wonder if the context is lost if you're just approaching it as like I'll just throw this on today on my headphones while I'm doing a bit of work like I think you need to work with this record and I mean for that reason alone like it's a good representation but I gotta say I did find it difficult but sometimes with the post-rock thing now not saying this about this album but it wasn't an excuse for a load of lads just to go we don't know how to write and pop oh, songs so we'll yeah. just stand here yeah, and have a wank point. for 20 minutes <laughs> like with all their instruments facing each other yeah. <laughs> yeah I was at a couple of them myself but you know that's the worry and yeah. that's that's the thing that got out of control I think Irish bands around after that time they just you know it, yeah. it didn't matter what they were doing there. I guess this is nice because it doesn't feel showy or competitive as yeah. the way you know it can go that way when it gets into Matt Rock and stuff like yeah. that yeah well let's move on to a triumphalist album or no rather a much more low-key one uh, it's Damien Rice it's O and here's Delicate so why'd you feel my sorrows with the words So uh, I remember this record coming out and I remember it coming out in a like a sleeve that was kind of almost velvety to touch or something. There was like a weird packaging on it where like it was like this kind of cardboard folder thing, which was just it felt like wallpaper or something. There was something about it. And so my, my initial kind of reaction was, well, this is a bit precious, isn't it? And then you put it on and then you're like, this is a bit precious, isn't it? <laughs> and I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a big fan. And I was like, Damien Rice, 2002. Oh, give me your thoughts on that now in 2017. I want to I know what you think. And he was like, he goes, he goes. I think you could definitely like listen to it today and say it's a bit angsty, it's a bit much, it's a bit overwrought. He goes, but at the same time, that's that's part of its charm. That's why it kind of works the way it does. That's why people took to it the way that they did. And I, I'm, I mean, like, like all this kind of sounds like I'm about to like be disparaging about it. I'm not. I do like the album quite a lot. Uh, I do think, however, that it's quite front loaded. And I think that once you get through those first four tracks, he's kind of made his point. And I wonder if it actually consists over the course of the record. I mean, again, for very different reasons, uh, like the last record we just discussed, uh, I would say, again, coming to the end of this when you're kind of like looking at your watch almost, and, and it's like, and that's not to be kind of dismissive of what is on here, but I just feel like he makes the point very, very well, very, very early, and that can always be a danger. Uh, is it just me, or...? No, I agree. It's kind of like the Joshua Tree of, you know, um, Irish singer-songwriters at the turn of the century. It's, you know, it's that kind of thing. It is quite front-loaded. That's interesting, you know, in the run-up to this album, uh, you kind of listening to him talk about what he was hoping to achieve, you might have expected a totally different album because this is so commercial sounding and it, it got so massive and he was talking about, okay, stuff I have to get off my chest, I don't want to be compromised in any way. And I guess he did his own thing. Um, uh, I think I'm right in saying that he just came into this wanting to record this as his one record and then just letting it go. And he's talked about the follow-up maybe not being 
what he hoped for, maybe he shouldn't have done it. So this was like his big statement and he does make it kind of early doors. Um, but it's a, it's a very strong collection of songs. And what makes it a great recording, I think, is Lisa's voice and just how they intertwine. It's such a huge, important part of that record, I think. And it just sounds like the kind of record that is never played when it's just not like candlelight. <laughs> That's just my feelings on it. Although it was clearly played in Tesco's everywhere for like, you know, the last 10 years. So what am I talking about? Yeah, I've, I I I was in a band with Damien for a long time, as as we all know, I think, and it's it's been, you know, we we started playing music together when we were thirteen or fourteen, so we we have a, we had a very formative and powerful sort of relationship, and um, when he left the band, he sort of went. It was a pretty very dark time, I think, for for him and for us to a lesser extent, probably, but he. I, I, I'll always marvel at the force of will that that got, that that made this record because he he had no nothing he had no gear he was borrowing <laughs> drum kits and concertining them uh, and taking them on the bus uh, he borrowed an eight track from us to to record it but it, it, it I think the record that all of that became part of its appeal. I think I think the record went beyond the songs that are on the on the album. There was that sort of great sort of self-made triumph factor and also as you mentioned I think the Lisa uh, input and and the sort of their whole vibe is very sort of seductive. Uh, there are we on are we not the the sort of the drama therein was was very um appealing I think. Uh, you know when there's a song that in, in that she sort of s- sings to him, "I'm no one's daughter." Allow me that, you know, referencing the blower's daughter. That you know was this sort of muse, I think, for a minute. Um, so I think, you know, I, I I I do think you know trying to be objective. It's kind of I find it hard to be obje- objective about it, but I think there are some amazingly well written sort of Ivor Novello s- standard songs there that that. You know, sit down and play me a song. It's got, you know, the, the structure and the, the hooks and the sort of memorability. I think, for me, and I think he he would agree with this as well at this stage that it's it's it is overwrought and it's the sort of quite 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 screamy 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 quite 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 in a very sort of he sort of telegraphs a lot of that. It's quite unsubtle in the, in that sense, but it does have those like he recorded the the drums for most of it. So it has a juxtaposition of a very sort of lo-fi appeal, and then he's got these really sumptuous string sections in a few a few of the songs that have that yeah. that really, and then you know Lisa's voice as well. The, the, these really sort of high-end elements to, with with the sort of lo-fi elements, and I think that marriage kind of works. I think um, I think you've nailed it there. A lot of that stuff, I agree with them. I think the thing that's great about it isn't necessarily. The so, the songs it is obviously the songs, but it isn't the the best thing about it for me is the the feeling, the feeling throughout it is when he gets it right is exceptional. And a lot of that is the connection that he has with Lisa. I think she her voice comes first comes in in Volcano, which I think is the second song, and then just from then on, you know, she's in it a lot. You know, sometimes like you know taking most of the song, and I don't know. I think. I had never listened to this album, and it's, which is strange because I almost knew <laughs> I knew the first four or five tracks, you know, mm-hmm. off by heart nearly. And um, yeah, I think while it's not not groundbreaking, I don't think it's it's different enough. And at its worst, I think like songs like "Cheers, Darling" and "Cold Water" are very 
cliche, mm. but when it works, like, you know, Blow His Daughter, Cannonball, and I think uh, Volcano as well, like, and Delicate, again, just absolutely great, you know, it's, it's, it, it's really good, and it's really hard to be that uh, kind of, obviously, kind of, there's that singer-songwriter modeling kind of, you know, tortured thing, which is not, not that appealing. <laughs> It isn't that appealing, but when he nails it, I think he does it really well. But when it's like, if you took the worst songs from this, maybe, or the songs that don't work as well, yeah. it's it's not great. But the bits that work, do work. Jennifer Gannon, I'm just going to ask, <laughs> just, just asking, is that style, though, and the tracks, and the, is, like, is that nails on a chalkboard to you? Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I had to go to house parties from like 2002, 2003, and every single fucker that took out an acoustic guitar. I mean, it just, it's not his fault, but like, it literally destroyed music with this album in a way for like, so many people because without this like every guy thought they were onto a winner by like you know dragging out the guitar and you know mewling into your face like and it was not good and then you know he kind of gave birth to Ed Sheeran Ed Sheeran is kind of his bastard child and so is James Bay and and, and Callum Bloody Scott that guy that, that desecrated Robin's dancing on my own it's all about like how that influenced so many people in you know an adverse way to think that that's what is good about this album is like slowing everything down and being very earnest, and that to me as somebody I'm a pop kid and I'm someone that's obsessed with like finding you know rare tallow disco stuff that no one cares about like and that's my kind of thing so this is the antithesis of anything I'd like it's just too sentimental for me and I I, I do have emotions but I just find it this I mean I like a troubadour or whatever but I like when it's done in a completely different way like say someone like Griff Reese or Beck when you can do so and like this was the year that Sea Change came out and for mm. me Beck's Sea Change is the complete this is the difference between what you want from one of those albums that is completely heartbreaking and beautiful. But Beck does it in a way where he's influenced by like Serge Gainsbourg and mm. you can hear um, even le- bits of Leonard Cohen in Beck's stuff and his style. And Nick Drake, he kind of robs a lot off Nick Drake yeah. on Sea Change. But he makes it beautiful. He, ma- he opens it out and it's not so... This to me, it feels like when... I don't know, it feels cloying and it feels oppressive. It feels like a, a, you're trying to get rid of a boyfriend or like a, you want him to be your ex-boyfriend but he just <laughs> won't take the hint. And that's what it feels like to me. I got all panicked listening to it. I was like, I can't. And I think it just reminds me of all all that time of like back in 2002 where it was just so prevalent and it was everyone's favourite album and I just couldn't understand it. Like uh, I just that, that couldn't is engage it, yeah. with it. If you were listening to it for the first time you might have a very different opinion than yeah, if you've been forced so. to go out to all those house parties you were forced to go. <laughs> Oh, that album had a couple of songs that were J- Juniper songs. Yeah. So is that cold? And that and, cold? and that appeared on our first record as well. Like Volcanoes on our first record. That's amazing. And Tongue actually Tongue didn't make it onto his, but yeah, there were, we, there were sort of stuff that we were our version, your version, his version. <laughs> and so was, did he say? I'm, you know, I'm leaving and I'm taking my songs with me and take the bag Bye. of songs. Yeah, he kind of did. And then we said, no, you're fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it, it, it's funny how the, the idea of, I mean, this is a tangent, I know, but the idea, the idea of, uh, I suppose, intellectual property generally, but yeah. sort of retaining, you know, so, you know, in a band, everyone has jobs. Someone's job is to fucking get posters printed and, and make sure the gigs are promoted properly. Another person's job might be to write songs. You know, the, when you split up, why should the person who wrote the songs get to take the whole, like, all the songs? Was our logic at the time. Yeah. Now I'd be like, 
Fucking yeah, I did. I wrote the songs. Yeah. Like, because you fucking answered phones, you're not taking my songs. You know, it's like <laughs> I know that you know that we've that's been a sort of very fluid sort of idea as to, as the band has progressed as to uh, at what point a song becomes a band song. I can imagine it was it was tricky, all right. But it, because he, even down to the credits, like he on his on the cred, credits for O, he, he like he credits our bass player Dominic for help with the bass line in Volcano, which is like a. It reads like a total fuck you, man. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, faint praise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, help with the baseline. And Paul, at the time when he, you know, he was kind of, he said in interviews, this is something that I have to do as a, you know, a, a creative statement that isn't tampered with or it's just kind of my outpouring of whatever I need to get out. Yeah. So when you were hearing this kind of stuff and then you heard the record, did you feel, oh, of course, he couldn't have done that within the confines of the bands? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think the 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 sort of the ex, the extent to which the sort of overwrought, overplayed, overdramatic things we we always railed against that. We always tried to temper that, and I think he he, yeah, he he did feel sort of curtailed in that sense. I think, and you know, all the stuff he had his own language for a while. He had his, he was uh, he was called Dodi Ma for a while, and sort of all that. It's kind of. It was hard to take and sort of not snigger, to be honest. And and, and so, I think he. I mean, he, he's he, he, him feeling sort of like um, commercially uh, restricted or sort of feeling obliged to to sort of deliver certain songs. I I know he's. I never. I. Mm, it, it was mash, his O was massively commercially successful, uh, mostly due to to a, a very uh, fancy remix they did of a song called Cannonball. With a guy called uh, Spike Stent, mm. it was the sort of pop mixer of the day, and um, you know it was the mo- you know by far the most commercial sort of uh, turn that you know even in in our time together, yeah. it was a blatant sort of let's go for the jugular here, and I mean it worked. Uh, he hates that version, I know, and in, like he plays a completely different version of Cannonball Live. It's him in the dark on his own. You know, I think it's a sort of like the anti posh uh, remix. <laughs> Yeah, he's given out about it quite a lot of interviews actually here and there and says that he'll never do a remix again as long as he lives. I mean, when that record came out, by the way, like, were you kind of like, was it like, I have to hear this now or did you take some time to get to it? I mean, like- uh, I think we, we'd heard it. I mean, we were sort of on, on, on good terms by that time again and we'd heard a lot of the mixes as they, as they went on. Um, and so, yeah, we'd been sharing a lot of gear at that stage. So, yeah, it was, I suppose we were sort of cheerleaders at that point as well. Like, I just wanted... We wanted it to happen because it was sort of he he had built this persona even before the record came out. He was like doing big shows and sort of had built this sort of identity and sort of vibe. As you as you say, there was a feeling. There was a lot of a lot of candles and drinking wine out of cups and sort of like gigs in cornucopia and stuff like that. You know, a bit of sofas on stage. No, I don't. A nice rug. I remember Superfree Animals played it accidentally played on a sitting room set in like 1998, I think, in the Olympia because Mrs. Brown <laughs> was on and they didn't move the set. And <laughs> Superfree's granddaddy, who granddaddy were supporting, ended up playing kind of on the set, but it kind of really suited them. It was yeah. great. <laughs> so even back then, Mrs. Brown was huge. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Not just now. Influencing wow. Irish music. Well, now for something completely different. Uh, let's go with Deputy Fuzz and Music for Toys. Mm-hmm. 
so that's uh, Deputy Fuzz, Music for Toys. And it's interesting, I was kind of like looking up this band, they were new to me, and I was not surprised to see that many members, or pretty much all the members, kind of went into bands that would... Um, th- this was pretty much the blueprint for Popical Island and yeah. that kind of style. That kind Almost of s- like for Fight Like Apes as well in another mm. way because, I mean, it was a real antidote to that. There was like that strain of really po-faced, super, super serious Irish music that was going on at the time and that was kind of just painful or a bit blank and this was like, they, they wore their pop sensibilities on their sleeves and they were very much like their label mates or the guys that set up the label, National Prayer Breakfast, MPB. Um, and they weren't afraid of having a giant chorus or they weren't afraid of you know having a song just go on for like only two minutes and they weren't afraid just not to use your average band setup and throw in like a whoopee whistle or throw in a flute solo or you know just experiment in in that way that felt like those chemical underground bands like the cheekiness or the kind of irreverence of Biss or Pink Cross was another band that kind of like them or the Yummy First so it was kind of, it was almost like that Glasgow scene that DIY, they recorded it in some, I think it was James's uh, granny flat, James's parents' granny flat. The and it James. just felt, yeah, and it just felt like really DIY and, you know, we're doing it right here now, kids, which is not something that was happening at that time. And it was fun. And it was around the time of the chalets, I suppose, as well, and chicks uh, before that. So it was in that ethos where it was just a bit fun. And although the songs now, they probably haven't aged well. It reminds me of like, it's like looking back on a fuzzy Polaroid from college where you can't remember where it was or why it was taken and everybody looks bad, but you're glad it was taken. You're glad you were there. And it just gives you that feeling where you can feel it in them that they're really excited and happy and in, to be in a band. And that, that feeling wasn't around then. It, everybody had to be, we're too cool for this or we're above this or we're removed from this. But you can hear it coming out of that record. Like it almost smells like vodka and Red Bull. You can just <laughs> smell it. Like, And it just, I like, I just enjoy that attitude. And they put that attitude into everything, I think, post that, because you have, you know, James went on to found like any other city records and obviously Drums for Villagers and, you know, Bronwyn is in a million bands. She was in Skelecrats and Grand Pocket Orchestra and We Are Losers. And, you know, it just, they were so into music and you can hear, you know, the passion for it. It may not be the songs you're going to listen to 24-7, but I think for, it's like a little mini time capsule of 2002 and the fun that you could have had. I'm going to sound like such a music snob uh, when it comes to discussing this band. So uh, we'll pass to you first, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're going to be on the same wavelength a bit, which always worries me. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't seriously. in any of those po- Polaroids. So, and I wasn't that, you know, you were listening 13. to it at the time. <laughs> I know. I was six years six year 13 year old. Six years and this peak, meant yeah. nothing to me. So it's that kind of thing where oh, I never really like it when the band sounds like they're having fun and I'm not having fun. Um, so it, it's very much that thing for me. And while you can hear this being a blueprint for so many bands and a lot of which I, I like and have a lot of time for, it's that DIY ramshackle kind of knowing toss away thing that really has to be executed in a certain way for me to get on board with it. And it just didn't kind of connect with me. Um, like stuff like Beatnik Beast just seems like, I don't know. It's like the middle eight of a throwaway pavement song just stretched out. Hey, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but without Malkmus. Yeah, it was like, a spiral yeah. stairs one. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, so it's it's that kind of thing for me. It just, it, it really didn't connect. I did like the closer though, so it ended on a good note. But I'm yeah. all for, you know, like, I'm all for like songs that are a minute and a half long and for, you know, just throwing everything at the wall seeing what sticks and which is why I'm probably going to contradict myself immediately. But like uh, when you kind of said, you know, Bronwyn was in a million different bands, that's, 
part of my problem with the Popical Island kind of stable. It's like, fucking pick one and make that good, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> like, let's just be in 17 bands at once and let's not mix our, our songs because that's a bit lame. And I'm like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ. And like, bands like Tyrannosaur and like, I was like, just their ethos always really, I couldn't get on board with it because I, I don't need my songs to be perfectly produced. I don't need them to be incredibly laser focused. But like, if you're going to have contempt for the idea of mixing and mastering, I, I just, I, I, I can't. Like, I, I, I find myself just going, no. Like this, I, I know it's meant to sound like it's a party and it's the last song at the party, but stretched out over a record and for a band to have a career and do live gigs off the back of it. Again, I know I sound like my dad. I, I, I know it. But it's <laughs> a career. It's not like they were supporting someone at the Super Bowl. Or but like, no, but, like, but, if, but, if, but if you're gonna like, you know, like make a go of it and like, you know, be on festivals here and there and like all that kind of stuff. I mean, like, I, I'm not throwing them all like under the bus completely. But like, and like, I think you know, Paddy Hanna's gone to do some very interesting stuff. And, and like, you know, even Grand Parks Orchestra and kind of Ginnels, like they would do a lot, but they would almost it was it was just too much. Like they bring out double albums and like, you know, there's here, here's 25 songs, and I'm like. Is the point of this to be? But would you say that to Marky Smith? Well, I'm not into the fall. I mean, like to be honest. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, Craig. You yeah. wouldn't say that to Marky Smith anyway. Oh, just kill you. Yeah, I think you can't. You can't give it a, like that. Is that's what's going on? That's the ethos here. Yeah. So I know how how much of a contradiction I say. And, and no, how, but the point yeah. is, is like it's you know it's like shouting at a dog for being a dog. You know, it's <laughs> it's which I often do. You know, it's going to bark a certain way, and I I think this is. At a time, like there's a song and I called "Kids Kids Dig Punk," mm. and "Kids Dig Punk" is genuinely, you know, without exaggeration, one of my favorite ever songs by an Irish band. Uh, I I love it so much. And when this came up, I, the first thing I did was go back and listen. I had listened to it a couple of years. I have, I have a, a, a copy on this, on a I recorded it off a CD, whatever. And the actual the actual MP3 is really kind of degraded, which I didn't think could happen. But it's <laughs> that's how like you know it was like a, a, a CDR I got at a gig or whatever. But I, honestly, I think when it doesn't work, which is a lot of times as a song, Fluffer, which is yeah, absolutely awful. There's a all. song called the, the Ultimate Gopher Song, that's which is absolutely awful. <laughs> you know, there's loads of things like that. But when it does work, No Son, No Daughter, the last track, Kids Sing Punk, um, even the first track, Whiskey Business, like there's just something really cool about it. There's just something fun about it. I don't, I don't think I'm going to put it on, you know, every other day. But like, I don't know, I... I didn't. I actually didn't think this album was gonna. I I didn't think anyone was gonna vote for this, but uh, I just said Feck, it had to go in because of Kids Sing Punk, and I I don't know. I don't think it was the best album of the year, um. But uh, parts of it, like the drums, sound awful, but they also sound brilliant. brilliant. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the a really annoying way that they meander and sometimes don't finish courses is really annoying. But also, I'm in a band, so sometimes. I just want to go. Well, let's just do with that. That's that's that sounds fun. Sometimes the demos sound better than the actual recordings, and you go in and you try and make the recording sound like the demo. And sometimes the demo just has something that's intangible, and th- these sound like a load of demos that had something, and still do. And as I say, not everything. Her, you know, Brahman's voice is very American at times. Matt's singing mm. sometimes isn't is a bit strange. But the best bits about this are why this is a good record and why you know why it's worth a listen and you know I think people will, will listen to this and people would like it but there would be a certain amount of people that would so in the spirit of saying this is an album you should revisit I think you know <laughs> I think you put caution on it but I think there are people <laughs> who would absolutely love it And uh, but I will say like, Kids Dig Punk genuinely one of my favourite ever songs by an Irish band Paul where do you stand on it? I didn't know the record at the time and having listened to it 
the last few days. I, I, I think there is that that spirit and stuff is a, there's a lot to admire and and sort of on paper. I love the idea of songs. There are most songs, apart from one, I think they're less than three minutes long. Um, I just think there's a. It's great to sort of fun is a is a, is a great thing to sort of convey, but I think most of it just ends up sounding funny. It's not fun. It's funny to yeah, me. Yeah, to when me, it dips into comedy and, songs. It's and and I I just don't. It's not something I'll ever listen to again. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think people like James, the drummer, is is a wonderful human being. I think he's gone on to, I think any any other city. He's just he's a, he's a, his his sort of love for what he does and and is really infectious and he's he's brought an awful lot to the Irish music scene generally I think he's with girl band and with villagers and stuff as well but I, I think as as a journey and it's actually reading about the band led me to read uh, an article that Patrick Frayne wrote in the Times about the experience of being in a band of about being an MPB which is beautiful yeah. and it really captures that sort of you know it's it's there's a wonderful um, title to it how to how to be in a band and influence nobody or something <laughs> <laughs> and it, it 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 he speaks very fondly of the, of that group of people you know that that uh, uh they put out the, that deputy Phil's record yeah. the mpp mpb's label did you, and yeah, it seemed like a really uh a, a lovely symbiotic sort of thing that sort of grew organically and they were but I do remember sort of watching that sort of scene from from the periphery and not getting it, but sort of wanting to 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 sort of to to be sort of less po faced, say about what we what we did, and sort of wanting a bit of that, you know, as a result. So I, yeah, it, it's 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 it, and I think that was a very, as you said, it was quite a new uh, spirit in, in, in within the Irish music scene. That yeah. sort of that sense of fun and fuck it and. Uh, but that the fuck unashamed that sort of that's it, dish, yeah. like shambolic vibe yeah. but that's why yeah. there was 48 albums that year is because people could release <laughs> albums a lot more you know 25 they, of them were by them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get angsty again shall we <laughs> Jen rolls her eyes <laughs> uh, it's JJ72 with a difficult second album So that's from Eye to Sky, which yeah, I think it does qualify as difficult second album. And Craig, this was this new to you? Even though like, it was new to me, yeah. but the angst wasn't new to me. Having <laughs> um, picked up nineteen, yeah. somehow I completely missed JJ seventy two when they were becoming quite massive in Ireland and further afield for a couple of years there. And this was their second record. They'd sold something like half a million of the first, the self titled debut, two years previously. So. At a time when, as we talked about previously, there was a lot of these, you know, pop idol things cropping up. It's interesting going back to old clips and old interviews and the amount of journalists saying, oh, this is great. This is real music. And they're playing their instruments. Do you remember that thing, debate before? It was just like, well, no one's getting paid whatsoever for music. So we should worry about that. It used to be like they play their instruments and this is real music. That was a proper thing. (laughs) Mm. Um, But yeah, this is very much the flip side of what we just talked about uh, in terms of it's ambition, but also it's po-facedness and this kind of grandiosity 
Um, it's interesting in the interview for in the run up to this album um, with Hot Press with Peter Murphy, uh, Mark Greeny, the frontman, the kind of songwriter, is talking about his um, his upbringing and going to Belvedere College where the band started and the Jesuit education that he got. And he's talking about how he adores the grandiosity of religion and he wanted to put that into record. And then he says later that the reason maybe this record didn't work was because he spent a lot of time thinking about the grandiosity of religion, putting that into record and didn't just write some like hits. And there are tracks here that are definite kind of hits. Um, the likes of Formula uh, Forever uh, or for Always and Forever are very much up there with kind of the numbers on the first album which kind of made them a big deal but they're few and far between and while it's a good record it takes a good few listens um, produced by Flood and it very much kind of leans back or doubles down on their influences which is a lot of kind of Smashing Pumpkins melancholy stuff yeah Smashing Pumpkins Placebo and Muse is what I have written there's a lot of Placebo so much Placebo yeah they basically wrote Meds before Placebo wrote Meds yeah there's a lot of Placebo songs on this record Brian Marco might owe them some publishing I'm just going to say it I think you hear I think it's true that you hear the influences of a band as time goes on a lot more than at the time maybe do you know what I mean? It's like the stuff that stays in people's heads is the stuff that's I don't know where, where I, I just, now I listen back and I'm like God, it sounds so much like Sasha Pumpkins at times, and that's the production I think. It's obviously much mm. more of a band effort than the first album, um, and I have down always and forever is like a, a proper pop song. Like it's an like yeah. it sounds like it sounds like an actually I wouldn't say cynically, but it, it it's it's very pop. Even the chorus, the way it works. The the one thing I I, I did. I suppose I don't know if it's kind of the way I remembered it but was the first album was a big hit the second album didn't work and mm. it, you know it wasn't a good album or whatever but like this it, you know this is a solid album and, yeah. and as well um, it does sounds very much like the first one just more produced the only thing that this doesn't have as far as the first album did I suppose is a Snow or an Oxygen or um, October Swimmer or an October Swimmer yeah. do you know what I mean that's all that I think is sort of missing from from yeah. this in the way that the first one worked you know and I think it does kind of reward repeat listens um, it's maybe slightly overly long but there's it a is. lot of good stuff here and it seems like kind of you know Hillary Woods less, left the band something like less than six months after it came out so already they were kind of okay there was a third album made but it wasn't released yeah, yeah, yeah. it was kind of quite an old school problem with a record label where it was stuff about okay if this single doesn't chart in the top 30 we're not maybe going to release it and there was just a lot of that kind of stuff which maybe has gone away a bit now um, the way the industry has changed this album isn't I couldn't find it anywhere I found it very hard to it's find in, yeah, yeah YouTube so, so I found, found it on YouTube and then it's I not had on to, the streaming services yes, for some it's reason it's really yeah. weird yeah. but also um, the Gemma Hayes album isn't anywhere on, isn't on YouTube which is the other side of it and uh, it was only because there's like five it. different versions of it but um, maybe but you know I, I don't like I, I wonder what's going on with that I always just think now God get them get them up everywhere I remember watching them play live once and he was like guzzling a bottle of wine and he had this sort of he was really a really compelling front man I, th- I thought but then this record didn't happen and it seemed like the sort of hard realities of sort of major label mechanics kicked in like you didn't deliver singles we're not going to push it singles don't happen you get dropped and fade into sort of obscurity and it, it I remember going oh, Jesus you know you, you can were right slip. in your second album at that time right? yeah yeah, well, I mean, not that we were in, in any way at the same level. I mean, we we hadn't our first record didn't really do anything as such, but it it, it sort of it it was part of a sort of slow incline. I think, um, 
but I, I don't know, I'd, I'd never... And I really love the production on this, actually. I love the, that sort of... It, 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 again, it's very melancholy in that flood drum, bass, guitar sort of sonic palette. But I, I don't know, it just never... It, it lacked the appeal of the first one because of the singles to me. This is a you know a solid second album. It's by no means uh, a difficult second album apart from the uh, apart from the uh, the singles, I suppose. You know, but I don't know. It's kind of unfair. Mm. I used to always <laughs> think he sounded like he was a midway through having a really painful shit, and that used to put me off them completely. Um, and I just I think if you were taking yourself so seriously, nobody else should. That should be the upshot of that. I just hate when it's like. But not to say, because I really, I did like serious music. Like I loved the Mannix and I loved Suede. I was a massive Suede fan. But I always think they did it kind of sexily or they did it with like a, a, a sly wink and they did have some kind of something about them that was a little bit more humorous rather than this felt like, this felt like you should, I was sad for them being in this band because it just, it felt like that thing with, but even with Placebo, at least you felt they might have been having a little bit of fun. I just never felt they were having any fun. I was like, what's the point, guys? If, you know, you're not enjoying it, you could just, you know, be an accountant, it's grand. We don't really need it, it's fine. But upon reflection and saying that, when I re-listened to it, I couldn't get over the fact that I actually remembered loads of the songs from it, um, from back in the day. And I forgot, actually, how melodic they were. And, like, there is something be- to be said for that massive bombast. It's a little bit like a fuck you as well, which is, enjoyable which you know a lot of Irish bands don't really have the the balls to really go for that huge style and I think yeah like something like Always and Forever I had that pegged as that is a massive pop song so yeah. I don't know why it wasn't as successful as it should it, it could have been um, other than the fact that vocally it'll never do it for me but you know music wise I think it sounds it stands up and it does deserve a re-listen which is such a strange thing for me to say anybody that knows me would be like really? but <laughs> from actually sitting down to listen to it I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would have yeah I mean like it's weird because like I I loved that first record I loved October Swimmer like I just fell in love with that completely uh, I would have been 16 at the time and so you know very angsty and <laughs> very much like you know like Limp Bizkit hadn't come along yet Craig so I wasn't uh, oh, dark uh, times <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I just guy, I don't know what it was. Like, I, one thing I would say is a lot less publicity. Definitely a lot less kind of like. I, I remember like MTV Two would play October Swimmer every hour. Um, you know, you'd see them in Q, you'd see them in Hot Press, obviously, and places like that. But like, second record comes out, and like it just kind of dropped. Like, I mean, it, it was it, it, there was no big thing around it. I don't know how, how often they toured, but obviously the band were engaging in their own kind of inner turmoils as well. But it just seemed like it, the party was over, if it was ever a party to begin with. But and even like you know, other kind of not 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 so much sound alike bands, but bands that they might get compared to at the time. Muse brought out Origin of Symmetry a year beforehand, I think, which kind of took them away from the Radiohead comparisons and brought them into more kind of stadium esque type things, which they would eventually become. And you had tracks in there that were very Kerrang friendly, like Plug in Baby was huge and. Uh, newborn and bliss those kind of tracks and they were fucking gigantic then next thing you know muse are playing in places like donnington uh at like the download festival or the oz fest whatever it was called back then whereas jg72 just kind of got lost in the shuffle it was it was strange like were was, they almost too indie and not metal I enough that they got so. started you know comparisons to the likes of the strokes are kind of really you know cut back garage rock yeah from yeah that's see that's it it kind of feels like it's outmoded already before it was even released because yeah. you're looking at like the white stripes you're looking at you know the strokes yeah. the hives that kind of thing and dandy warhol is, had, had, had yeah. their kind of big like hits around that time like i, I think you kind of nailed jen that like you know 
music was fun, for lack of a better word. Like I mean, like, here's all here were all these upbeat rock songs in the charts, and then and there there's JJ seventy two. Unless you rinse them from the first record, you're probably not going to bother. And it's so strange that can felt happen. Like you know, they wanted you to do speed off the back of a ruler, and then the other band felt like you're just going to be sitting there and listening to some moan and all night drinking red wine, <laughs> and you're just like, what are my choices here? Where will I go? So <laughs> well, that's interesting though, because like just if you look at all the albums apart from Damien Rice, I suppose you're looking at albums like good albums that maybe didn't break the bands or you know like the Jimmy Cake didn't go on to be be like a big band JJ72 after this obviously broke up Deputy Fours broke up after this and Gemma Hayes well I think Gemma Hayes is great she, it's not this was I think I think she was signed like four or five years before and there was a succession of EPs to this album and I don't think Gemma Hayes was ever as big after it so it's kind of interesting if you look that these are all the I don't know, are they, the, I suppose, with Deputy Fuzz, but the best albums by the bands, but they, they never really kind of, kind of crossed over, I suppose. Would you say? Yeah, I think so I'm, I'm just thinking, obviously, and Damien Rice is, is the, the exception, who maybe wrote an album that was, you know, unlikely to be massive and ended up being massive, so it was kind of the, the reverse of that. Well, let's move on then to Gem Hazing, as you've previewed it. So, yeah, Night in My Side. Uh, there's several releases of this, but, you know, I think we're going to go with the, the first one that came out. And uh, it sounds like this. Okay, so that's uh, Lucky One, Bird of Casadega, which I think is one of the best tracks on the record. And uh, I'm, I, I think this is a very interesting one, very atmospheric. Paul, you were involved. I did. I played drums on this record. Um, uh, and so it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm try, I've been trying to separate the sort of experience of making the record from, you know, the record itself. So, but, it, you know, which is probably impossible. But I do, it's a record I still listen to. Um... And it, 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 you know, Gemma came to Dublin, you know, straight out of Ballyporine when she was in her teens and sort of started playing in the international bar and was part of that sort of Mick Christopher, Mundy, Glenn sort of scene. And, you know, was, was the sort of beautiful girl who was playing these very dainty sort of picky songs and a lot of Nick Drake songs and, you know, was was sort of pigeonholed, I think, pretty early as as that kind of you know, pretty straight up singer songwriter, and the first two EPs she was signed to Source Record. The first two EPs were kind of along those lines. With the record, it it feels like she, you know, she really wanted to stretch her legs. There's lots of sort of lots of noise, lots of sort of big drops to just big distorted bass and and sort of trashy drums and. Um, she really she she wanted to make that statement. She wanted to make that shift. Uh, you know that perception of her as a sort of like rinky dinky singer songwriter. She wanted to sort of change change that up and and represent something else. And, and I think this record does that. It 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 it's got a you know it does have the sort of more traditional singer songwriter based gentle things. But and it I think it juxtaposes her you know quite sort of pretty beautiful voice with 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 the noise and and a lot of that is we we worked with a guy called Dave Friedman uh, 
who produced the record, we went to Buffalo, New York, and uh, Flaming Lips. The Flaming Lips. Yeah, he had just he had just okay. made the Soft Bulletin. The Soft Bulletin just, just had just come out, oh, yeah. and the and Mercury Revs Deserter songs. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they have, especially the Flaming Lips record has that wonderful bass and drum madness that that, that it's it's kind of still his signature, even with say MGMT and yeah. you know bands like that. So and and when we got into the studio, there was Wayne Coyne had. Had, has this habit of sort of drawing on the walls and leaving little notes and stuff everywhere that they had left up from the session, you know. And there was even that that line, um, "Although they were sad, they rescued everyone." You know, it was written somewhere in the in the control room, you know. So it it for us like loving his work and being sort of in our early twenties, and it was a real. Well, I'd never worked at that level, you know, at that point, and it, it was a very. I think for all of us, Jim, Gemma was quite a bit younger as well, that it was a massively, uh, I think we upped our game. It was myself and Carl Odlum who played bass and Dave Odlum played guitar. Dave was in the frames originally. And, you know, from those original sessions in Buffalo, New York with, with Dave Friedman, they then took the, rec- the record. Uh, Dave uh, Odlum has a studio in Black Box in France, worked on it some more. And uh, then they had, I think, Source had uh, Source Records had big hopes for it. They had a couple of remixes done by again that guy Mike Spike Stent, the super expensive pop mixer of the day. So it ended up when I remember I remember hearing the record when it was done, and it was it was. I felt when we had that sort of intense period with with Dave Friedman in 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 New York, it had it had a sort of an, a real strong sort of identity that that idea of 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 these sort of delicious builds to these really satisfying payoffs of with noise and, and and distortion and sort of being very layered and full and sort of vocally sort of mantric and she she wanted to sort of step outside the sort of conventional song structure as well so they have those a lot of them have those sort of big extended outros and and sort of wig outs that um that that all a lot of them seemed to disappear by the time the record was sort of through the the chain of 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 of, uh, of re-records and 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 overdubs and mixing. So, it, it well, I remember thinking that my initial reaction there was a missed opportunity to to sort of represent something that was that to me anyway felt sort of more more coherent. Um, I think the singles, the song called "Back of My Hand," which is probably the what they tried to sort of really sell the record on. Uh, Told a very small part of the story that the song we just played, um, "Lucky One," Berta Casadega, to me is the sort of signature that has that sort of real trashy payoff. It's a great song. Yeah. So I, I mean, I again, it's hard for me to be objective, but I think it's a really strong record. It was nominated for the Mercury Prize that year. We went along and it was played. Missy, Missy Dynamite. Miss Dynamite won, but the best tee-hee, part of that was yeah. <laughs> Seeing Roots Maneuver perform in a in a leather tracksuit oh. <laughs> was the he best had part of that. Jogging night. bottoms before Kanye. Kanye. <laughs> it's been like that for a minute. Roots Maneuver. <laughs> Where can I get some of that? Um, I think I think I think it's a it's it's brilliant. I think it's got great sounds. It sounds very much like the Frames. I think I'm hearing a lot of Frames guitar in it throughout. Um, uh, I had the album at the time. Um, I think Hanging Around was the song that I heard in the radio. Um, I don't know. It's it's just brilliant. There's just lots of lush sounds. I think the production's excellent. Um, there's the, the weird thing about her songwriting that, that I, I I found over the course of the album is there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of um, 
sometimes it really works like there's a song called uh, Tear in My Side and it, it's quite repetitious but it's it's really good but then other songs as the album goes on it doesn't work as well you know so um, I think the first five or six uh, sort of the first half or the A side of this I think it's the first six seven songs probably up to Lucky One as you mentioned I think are just absolutely fa- fabulous and the second half of the album it feels like lots of other elements of the album are represented again sort of you know except there's a song called uh, 4.35am which is absolutely just you know stunningly beautiful song it's it's amazing um, I think it's a really strong record and as I said a lot of driving at night and it just just accompanied me accompanied me the whole way yeah. and, and I, I, I lo- actually I really fell in love with it um, over the course of the, the time and actually you know I, I when I when I s- submitted this kind of uh, my song my albums um that I that I would be you know talking about on this podcast uh I hadn't listened to the Gemma Hayes one as much but I listened to it in the last 3 days as I said and it just just washed over me I, I just what washed over me that's a, that's a good positive yes I that's got a, washed away with it that's maybe. a line from American Psycho by the way which is about uh, when he says uh, he says the relief washes over me in an awesome way oh, it's wow. one of like, the most hilarious yeah. overwritten well I felt like the relief washed over me in an awesome way to quote Patrick Bateman one of my favourite literary I think heroes Jen mentioned Grandaddy earlier on I was actually just thinking on the way over like I mean like there's I think the aforementioned tracks you mentioned Terry My Side and Lucky One I think a they reminded me of So You Lame Towards the Sky by Granddaddy. Just that kind of contemplative, melancholic moment allowing it to kind of stretch out thing. I mean, like, I agree with you, Kira, that, you know, repetition when used, again, isn't as effective. But I think in the, the kind of confidence of going there early on, especially in the record, is really, really strong. And I think with the singles as well, there's kind of an almost like a more kind of deliberately focused belly or the breeders going on as well. I mean, like, I think if you gave a Gemma Hayes album to someone they might not expect just how full on this record can sound at times, and, and how much of a band record it is, as mm. Paul was kind mm. of alluding to. No, it really is. Yeah, um, much more than you, you you would have thought. Yeah, like it sounds like a band. I mean, like, like, I'm not taking away from her or anything, but like, but it sounds like 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 a full project. And, and, and yeah, I, I think it's again a little bit long in the tooth, but for the most part, I think the atmosphere wins the day. Craig. I mean, the drums on this thing are sensational. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> Boom. As a drummer myself, I must say, terrific drumming. Yeah, like Sticks man. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful sounding record to echo what you guys have been saying. And yeah, it's the noise that draws you in, but it's that kind of comfort blanket noise that's just, it's, it's warm. The tone is gorgeous. She's talked about Neil Young being an influence and it is that kind of bridge between his folkier stuff and then when he just kind of gets a bit of electricity going. Right. Um, and there's some very strong songs in this I, I didn't know the record so I was surprised um, from what I heard um, it is a band record uh, but yeah it's a, it's a delightful listen really is Jennifer Gannon Hi uh, no, <laughs> I just I think for me when this was around we I wasn't on my radar because it just from that year I remember it being nominated for the Mercury, so it was nice to be able to listen to it and go, well, actually, I never gave this really much of a listen to back in the day. Um, and it does feel, it feels like that Americana vibe from it. And that's why I think it's, a, we were saying like it's a good driving album because it feels like you're on a journey to use a beautiful X Factor expression. <laughs> but it does. And it's, you know, the thing about it is it's very Beautiful. I do think it's gorgeously done and it sounds like sonically it, it is, there's waves to it. But for me, it can just feel, I wish it pushed through more even. I wanted to go further and, and make it maybe 
put like less melodic or more discordant or more something just to get yeah, like something powerful from it. You know, it can be between, isn't it? Yeah, like alternative and kind of not pop, but maybe radio friendly. That's it, and like just and maybe that's the production, as you mentioned. Maybe it's it the production has brought it away from the alternative towards the radio friendly. Maybe yeah, and and she was a devil for like not never writing a last verse so she'd just repeat the first verse <laughs> for the last verse she was like uh, she just she found it very hard to sort of close I did think that I, I mean I was looking I'm always interested in the, the way that people write lyrics because um, uh, like in the, like the JG 72 album I felt like there's a the cut up he might have used the cut up method you know like there's lots of very very short sentences like just a verb and a, and a noun right. or this word is doing this you know like loads And but in this in Gemma Hayes one it sounds like uh, a kind of uh, they all sound like thought processes you know like uh, I have an idea for a song and I'm I'm going to kind of work it out over the course of the song sort of and then in the way that it sounds like that sometimes as you said it doesn't resolve necessarily like yeah. the, the repetition thing of coming back to a previously said phrase or maybe repeating a chorus a couple of times you know without without resolving it can can it, it's when it doesn't work it doesn't work as well yeah. and that can be a little bit frustrating they can feel a bit unfinished yeah. in, in that sense i think um, but um yeah i think i think on balance um while a lot of them like the Damien Rice albums over an hour JJ72 i think as you said 54 this 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 felt the longest for me, yeah, in the does. way that how long is it? I don't know. It but felt it, really long. It felt really long. <laughs> when I was listening to it again. I was like, "Jeez, that drummer would shut the fuck up." <laughs> but you know, the but twenty-minute solos were a bit. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you know, but you're not Bonham. <laughs> <laughs> but but like in the Jimmy Cake also does. You know, there's a couple of nine-minute songs in the Jimmy Cake. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't ever feel. I kind of, kind of felt they were the builds and all that kind of stuff. And some of the songs were in fact kind of hidden tracks in themselves. They would build to something and stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Jimmy Cake, I, I kind of let that off. But this one did feel like. I really wanted to snip, you know, three tracks off it. Did it feel like that at the time, Paul, or is it is no, this well, a reflection? I, this is on again when we finished. There were, probably weren't. I'm not sure I played on everything. No, it was only twelve songs. Actually, I did play on all these, and yeah, it didn't. It didn't feel like it was because uh, they took it to France, and there's a few sort of like accordion flutter moments and stuff that ended up. From like they 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 they'd find some local dude and 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 it was like a oboe moment as well that they they sort of like drag these so local up like French dudes in the bed. The oboe and the accordion. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Music it's it's yeah. You're officially distancing yourself from these flourishes. I yeah. am <laughs> down with that sort of thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I, th- that's always a fascinating thing to look back on. I, mean, I remember seeing an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker, and they were like, oh, you know, he so said he caught Magnolia on TV a couple of nights prior. And all I could think was, he was like, Jesus Christ, this is fucking long. <laughs> and I guess, like, it is interesting to kind of go back, especially, like, you know, I mean, like, starting out as well, I mean, you probably want to get everything in. You know, you want to be like, I can do yeah. all this. Yeah. And uh, But I think overall, you know, like, I would agree, Kira, I'd, I'd lose a few tracks if I could. But I think overall, it kind of has enough about it to, you know, kind of just capture you and, and bring you in. But that's kind of been a, been a facet of all of these records. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and try and put one at the top of the mountain, so to speak. Or at least not at the very bottom. Okay, so um, arguably one of our more contentious revisits, Kier. But uh, what are you going to go for here? 
That's right. I'm throwing straight to you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, uh, I think I think it's I think it's strong. I think uh, at strong five. Um, I also think, um, I I think in this more than a lot of the others. Maybe apart from Deputy Fuzz, all of the albums are kind of things that I think I'll definitely go back to and are things that will you know benefit from lots of listening. But um, if I had to choose one, uh, it would either be between Gemma Hayes and Jimmy Cake, and I think I would say Gemma Hayes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's interesting because I was thinking Jimmy Cake or Gemma Hayes. I think Jimmy Cake is the one I will keep going back to because I just love that record. But if I was recommending someone and the fact that she was cheated out of the Mercury Prize because of Miss Dynamite, I'm going to give it to Gemma as well. <laughs> All right. Paul? I feel like... I don't know. I maybe... I've, I've played drums on this record. I have a, I have a, I have a, a dog in the race, as it were. But yeah, I... I, if, I Banged Jimmy on about it for too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, J- uh, Gemma's record. Gemma Hayes. Oh, it's going to be hard. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go for the Jimmy Cake because I actually think that, because I keep on talking about them live when I was saying, oh, you should listen, you know, it's hard to listen to the album. But I think it's the album that you will go back to and go, well, I want to listen to that some more and just, you know, kind of seek it out and see what the hell is in there. <laughs> Something. And I'll go for Damien. No, I'm going for, uh, <laughs> I'm going for Gemma Hayes because uh, I, I thought it was the most enjoyable one to listen to. I'm sorry to Deputy Fuzz. Uh, you've all gone on to do very interesting things, but uh, Gemma Hayes has, uh, like, she's a very interesting artist. She's very prolific, but uh, I think this was, uh, as a first shot in particular, I think there's a, a lot of kind of unique elements were captured together. I love the fact that it's as big as it is. I, I think the production is ace. And again, you know, what more can be said about those drums? But uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think this is the one to go for. But then again, at the same time, the whole purpose of doing the show is to put forward a, a handful of records and, you know, it's kind of like looking at the star rating at the end of a review. Don't worry too much about that. Like, if there was anything said over the course of these five records that kind of made you, the listener, want to go and check them out, go do so. Because, to be fair, that Ebony Fuzz record should be heard. Like, I mean, it should be. I mean, I, I, I think it's an important kind of snapshot of the time. As Jen was saying, I mean, like, you know, it's a lot more personal to her than it would be for me. But... All five of these records are worth checking out, but Gemma Hayes is the one that I'll be listening to tonight when I go home. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that bit does it for the year 2002. Thanks, everybody, for coming in. Thank you, listener, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, uh, to play us out, Gemma Hayes with, um, what song should we go with, Paul? Uh, back of My Hand. Back of My Hand. Hello, sorry for the interruption. Uh, producer Alan here. Um... As you know, we like to try and uh, get an interview with somebody from the album that we're recommending. So uh, here, Kieran caught up with uh, Gemma from the Gemma Hayes album. Uh, so listen to that interview, and then we'll play out the episode with her song "Back of My Hand." Gemma Hayes, uh, this is Kieran calling you from No Encore, and um, we're talking about the revisit and your album "Night on My Side" from two thousand and two, which is, as we just said, fifteen years ago. So um, just hopefully we can have a little chat about how that came together. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> I don't. It's so long ago. I'm not sure I remember, but I'll give it a bet. Give it my best shot. So I suppose um, I think you had a couple of EPs before this album was recorded. Um, was it a kind of was that the decision of was that your kind of process? You were just kind of writing in kind of bursts like that, or was it something that the label did, or how did it come about that you um, the time from sort of you're just before the album. 
Uh, well, before the album, I suppose it was it was a mixture of the record label realizing that I was never in a studio before, and that you know maybe we shouldn't just have her go into this the studio to make the album for the first time. Um, but at the same time, I also I also didn't want to make an album without having a bit of practice. Um, and just to try out different sounds and different musicians, um, and just get a feel for for production, and you know what it is like to actually work with a producer. Um, uh, you know, because sometimes if I'm passionate about something and he's passionate or she's passionate about something, you know, how do you solve that? Yeah. Who who gets the last word? All of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was a mixture of both of us thinking it was a good idea. And I, I'm glad I did that um, because because it was really needed, you know, Yeah, and to, to learn the ins and outs of the politics. Exactly. There's always a lot of politics, I suppose. But, but it was Carl Odlum recorded the album. Is that right? And produced it. David Adam. David Adam, sorry. And, uh, Poor David and Carl, they always get mixed up. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think when we were talking about it, we 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 kind of thought that there was a little bit of a kind of a frames, kind of there was a little bit of you could hear a little bit of the frames sounds in the guitars. Was that because you yeah. kind of wrote the songs with the producer, or was it just what happened in the studio, or how did that kind of come about? Um. Uh, no, I, I, the songs were kind of written before I went into the studio, but but David David is such a David Adlam who was in the frames. He was a guitar player in the frames. Um, he has such a distinctive guitar style that um, that that was really he, he, his style coming through in my music, which is the same kind of style you hear in in the frames music. Um, and I'm such a big fan of what of what he does. Um, and then, then the rest would have been, a, yeah, just a collaboration of. I mean, I loved the early frame stuff, and uh, um, so definitely back then, it, you know, there would have been one of my like all-time favorite bands. So obviously to have the guitar player uh, and and actually the producer because he he produced some stuff for the frames mm-hmm. as well to to work on my music, um, you know, was was great i suppose and um probably probably, (laughs) uh, probably having someone that with that kind of experience in the studio probably was uh really important um i think that your influences i suppose it i don't know i think it was something that we kind of mentioned there was a kind of an american kind of influence you know did you feel that or was that accidental or was that because of dave friedman or who engineered um yeah i just well it was just sort of you know, like you go through phases in your life when you listen to certain types of music and you get, you know, just caught up in certain things. And back then, sort of 15 years ago, um, I suppose I would have looked more to America for everything as opposed to, let's say, to England, you know, or to Europe. I, I like the faraway, faraway hills were greener, but I was looking towards America. So, you know, I traveled around America before I made the album and I loved the country. Um, I love sort of Americana music. Um, my father was in a, a band for 30 years called the Hillbillies and they played sort of country music. Um, so there's always been just sort of a, a pull towards um, things that are just sort of got that American, I suppose, twang to it. But funnily enough, when I when I hear my voice 
back then in the early the early stuff I cringe sometimes because I, you know and I remember David Odom in the studio was like Jeremy you sound American <laughs> when you're singing and then what I, I remember then I was like oh crap I don't want to do that so and I wasn't aware of it so then I made this big effort to not sound American so I ended up putting on an Irish accent and he was like oh my god that's even worse <laughs> actually just go just go back to what you were doing because now you're trying to sound like Damien Dempsey and it's not working just you know um but yeah, I, I that that's where I was at the time, you know. And what do you remember about the sessions? I suppose uh, I think Paul, because Paul was was in chatting to us, and um, he was telling us that you, you you know you were in this amazing studio with the, you know, this legend, you know, Dave Freeman. And was it all a little bit daunting, or did, did it, was it all very easy, or how did it, how did it flow? No, it was daunting. It definitely was. Um, it definitely was. Um, but it was also just incredibly exciting. Um, uh, and we were in this sort of, uh, the studio was like a log cabin in a forest uh, outside of a, a town called Fredonia in upstate New York. Uh, a bit like Blair Witch. Tar- Tarbox um, Studios, is, it, is that the one? Tarbox, yeah, that's it. Tarbox Studios. Um, and he like Dave Friedman was it was a joy to work with, um, and again it, it, it's weird. It, there were moments. There's a song of mine called "Stop the Wheel" that um, that never made the album, and it was an acoustic song. And I always heard it as an acoustic song. And Dave Friedman said, "Yeah, I think we need to sort of do something with this song. You know, it needs it needs sort of an injection of something." And he went in, he basically, I put down a, a rough guide of the song and he went into the studio and played these massive, like, uh, bombastic drums on this song and picked up an, an electric guitar, bass, loads of, like, wood instruments and just made this song massive and kitsch and crazy. And I thought it was the most horrendous thing I'd ever heard. And... You know, we had a bit of a sort of a, a moment where it was we were at loggerheads. I was like, I that you know, this is a quiet acoustic song, and it's not meant to sound like that. Um, so eventually he decided, okay, fair enough, and we sort of we threw that one in the bin. But he gave me a, a, a CD of that version. He said, you know what, just in a few months, put that CD on and listen to it. And I'm like, okay. So I forgot about that CD and literally years later I found it in my parents' house and I put it on and I listened to his version of Stop the Wheel and it was incredible. Oh, God. Absolutely incredible. And I just didn't see it. I didn't hear it because, you know, I heard my song in a particular way and every other way was wrong. Um, So that was a massive lesson to sort of, you know, trust every now and then, trust. Yeah, and I suppose his uh, and, and let go of the rain. Yeah, his confidence in that as well was pretty amazing. For yeah, him to be able yeah. to say, "I but, know no, what this needs." Yeah, exactly. Um, he was he was fantastic, and it was a brilliant experience. And having Paul Carlotlam, actually Carlotlam was my bass player. Yeah, Carl was. Um, yeah. And David Odlam played guitar on the album, and. Uh, and we all we stayed in this you know log cabin in the woods, and you know Paul Noonan. Um, I don't know if you know Carl Adlam, but they're the nicest people to be around. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, it was it was really a magical time. It was my first album, so I didn't know what to expect. And I remember 
my record label did not want me to work with Dave Fridman. They thought he was too sort of bizarre. And, you know, he wouldn't sell lots of, you know, his style of production wouldn't necessarily be mainstream. Uh, and they really wanted me, they actually wanted me to work with Nigel Godridge, who also right. isn't mainstream, but um, but they really were, were eager for me to work with him. Um, and I just wanted to work with Dave Friedman. I, I, and I pushed it myself. I found his number and I called him and I asked him if I could send him a demo. And he said, okay. Um, so when I eventually, when Dave Friedman said, yeah, definitely come over and we'll do some work. My record label said, we don't, we absolutely don't support this and we're not signing a check for it. And I'm like, well, I eventually talked them around into signing a check to, to pay for it, but I certainly didn't have their blessing. So I felt a little bit under pressure over in America, knowing that, you know, I wasn't really being supported for it. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. And then when that al- the, the album actually got nominated for a Mercury Award, and I felt that was a real like, ha ha, <laughs> you, know, you know, there was there was something to this. I wasn't, you yeah. know, and what, I wasn't what, what wrong led to, work to, with this to guy. Dave Freeman was this sort of flame and lips kind of stuff, or yeah, yeah, Mercury Rev, flame and lips, Sparkle Horse, just all that stuff that I was listening to at the time. Um, and I loved it because my music is is by no means obscure, um, and and because of that, I felt I felt the production needed to be darker. Um, and but but not too dark. I mean, you know, you, sort of to be sympathetic to the to each individual song, um, and not try to hide the sweetness, but just to add a little bit of to the texture to it, and um, yeah, just interest interesting sounds, and um, and that was it really. I didn't know what to expect when I went to the studio. I didn't know yeah. where where we'd be going, and I remember when he he kind of put us all in his truck. And drove us up into the woods. I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> where where the hell are we going?" And um, um, actually, when I went back to mix the album, it was a bit freaky. It was September two thousand and one right. when I went back to mix the album, and it was just me and David Adlam, and uh, we flew in on September tenth, and then woke up to the World Trade Centers being, wow. uh, yeah. So that was really intense, and then we couldn't. We both wanted to go back home to Ireland, but we couldn't because they had they had basically grounded all the flights. Um, but David eventually got out. I stayed to, fin- to finish mixing the album, so I ended up being in this log cabin on my own at night. Oh, really? And uh, some kids that that lived um, like up in the woods. Um, a bit deliverance, kind of. Um, they decided to freak me out by putting loads of little crosses all around the log cabin at night. Oh my god! And <laughs> and they also um, would go hunting at night, so they would dress up in camouflage. <laughs> These are teenagers. I shouldn't call them kids. They were teenagers, and uh, so they were shooting their guns very close to the very close to the cabin. Uh, so Dave Fridman actually lives in Fredonia. He lived, he lived a few miles away with his wife and kids. So I, it was just me in this log cabin. And um, so I rang him up just going, you know, what the... And he said, it's all right. And he goes, there's a rifle 
in a certain cupboard, just go get the rifle. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know how to use a rifle because it's not loaded, but it'll scare them off. I'm like, that's ridiculous. But anyway, that's... Jesus. Um, <laughs> that's a mental story. So yeah. um, basically, um, yeah. you're, you're alone in this, yeah, and the pressure of it at home and 9-11 is going on and these kids are putting crosses around your house and firing guns uh, in the woods. Yeah, that would be, that would, that would, that would freak out a lot of people. Yeah, 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 it was pretty. Maybe that's why I don't remember it. Maybe I've blocked it out. Um, yeah, but that's but that's it. I mean, it was, it, yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, who was the assistant engineer, and he's he's in the Fame and Lips, and I can't, Michael I can't think of his name. Michael Ivins. Yes, that's yeah. his name. Yes, Michael Ivins. Um And he was lovely as well. He was another sort of, you know, I, I'm always amazed by people that I, you know, he was just so kind of quiet and unassuming, but but incredibly talented. Well, yeah. You know, he, um, and even Dave Friedman as well, just, he was like a family guy um, and very humble and, and really saw his work as sort of, he, he didn't understand, like, you know, to him, oh, how do I describe it? Like there was no sort of bull involved. It was just work for him. He'd just drive into his studio and work for the day. And um, and I loved it. It was sort of very, um, he was there for the right reasons, you know. Well, congratulations. It's a brilliant album. And um, yeah, it's something that we're, we're very proud to kind of recommend from our end. Um, so look, thank you very much for chatting to me. And uh, best of luck, I'll let you get back to your... To, your, to, your to my tea and my tricks. <laughs> Thank you, Kieran. And for somebody who couldn't remember their album, I, I couldn't really stop talking there. Sorry. I, yeah. No, it was perfect. That was perfect. Thanks very much. Well, I'll be seeing you tomorrow. Well, I'll be seeing you again. God knows. Go so far as to call you a friend But there's something in your ways That keeps me vying for a connection And I know you feel the same It's become a two-way addiction Come on and give me your heart Ride it on the back of my
This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.